Hello, and welcome to The Weekend Booktopian. I'm Mark Harding, Content and Brand Manager for Booktopia, and this is a podcast about the books we're reading. Joining me today are Head of Trade Books, Joe Lowen. Hello, Joe. And Category Manager for Lifestyle Books, Janu Prasad. Hi, Janu. Hi. And we are also joined by Category Manager for Nonfiction, Joel Nayum. Hello, Joel. Hi, Mark. First up today, some book news, and we'll delve into the books everyone is reading. And be sure to stick around until the end of the show when my guests will go head to head in a book quiz battle, which this week, um, in honor of uh, the day before the day that we're recording, is Halloween themed. So uh, good luck, good luck with that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's very general. Just give it to Joel now. I'm not going to know anything about that. You, you will. I'm, I'm sorry. Could you just say Halloween themed? I thought. Sorry, I thought that my you know recording had stopped there. Halloween themed book quiz. Yeah. <laughs> right. I think I've been put onto the wrong podcast. Yeah, me too. They're broad. Um, they're broad. I think they're that broad. Mark has just decided again that his interests are the things that it's <laughs> Halloween this weekend, Shinu. <laughs> yeah, so that's what I'm saying. I think you put me on the wrong. I don't think I should have been on this podcast. I was. I watched a five-second clip last night on Nightly Pop on E News uh, from Lovecraft Country with these two creepy twins following this woman, this girl around. And oh, so I, terrifying! I, I had nightmares. I was like a five-second clip. I, I I can't handle even talk about scary things. Hey, look, so I could run away before. If you don't hear from me, it's because I've run away before the book fight has started. <laughs> Maybe there is a question about creepy twins in there. You, you don't know. I mean, there's not, but like. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if it's a book quiz and it's about, uh, you know, I don't know if it, oh, I know Lovecraft Country was based on a book, but very loosely, right? Uh, I think I think you might be surprised at, at uh, I've I've tried to make the the questions very easy. Yeah, that's what you said last time, and I don't think I answered <laughs> one. So, oh, Mark Easy and you know just general people listening easy seem to be two different levels. Well, I think there's there's the weeks when I have the time to kind of research the questions, and then there are the weeks <laughs> when I just have to pull books off my shelf, and I'm like, I'm going to ask about that and that and that, and it's always about like Ian and Banks or something. But that's yeah. not the case this week. Sure, we'll see. <laughs> we will see. All right, so um, uh, book news topics. Uh, the US election is uh, happening next week. Uh, we are in the midst of um, a huge phenomenon of Trump book publishing and uh, interest in US politics. Um, Joel, you're the category manager for this area. What are we seeing at the moment in terms of the way these books are trending? And uh, what is the future after the election? For the books, I, for the world. <laughs> <laughs> not for the world, yeah. I'm not going to predict the outcome of the election. But um, there was a huge spike in publishing around um, Trump issues right after he was elected, basically. And for the first maybe six months or so of his um, t uh, time in office, that then extended to whenever it took for people to actually, you know, write research and publish the books that were about him. Um, and they were they completely warped the publishing industry in the United States so that they weren't publishing anywhere near as much other stuff. So it's completely changed, I think, the publishing industry to some extent. Uh, the appetite in Australia hasn't been anywhere near the same, but we have had some big standout books. Um, and then it just disappeared. It, all the sales for those books dropped off a cliff. Everyone just got sort of used to Trump and it was no longer that remarkable that he said crazy things all the time. And about, I guess, July-ish, I think a, a couple of books came out that really um, seemed to um, jump out again. I guess it was off the back of the 
Black Lives Matter protests and a just general um, discontent with the pandemic response and stuff like that. And so there were a couple of big books that came out at that time um, that were very, very critical of Trump and were from people who had been in his administration or very, very close to him. Um, and then they seem to have disappeared now too. And the books that are around are not necessarily selling huge numbers in the lead up to the election, in Australia at least, I'm sure that. That, that may not be the case in the US. And I think what everyone's waiting for is actually for Obama's book, which is coming out just after the election. And I think that, and that was announced you know, a couple of months ago now. And I think it's, it'd be really interesting to see what happens with that, depending on the outcome, whether that book is like, you know, if Biden wins, it will be like, here we are, a return to, to sanity and this, remember what it was like. And if Trump wins, it'll be like, everyone losing their minds and in the midst of that, whether Obama's book disappears or I, I find it really hard to predict how, how the election outcome is going to um, change that. But I, I think there's no doubt in my mind that if Trump wins another term, there will be another huge spike in Trump. Um, and if Trump doesn't win, I suspect there will be a couple of books that are like wrap-ups of the Trump era but we and also just don't know, Bill, sorry to cut in, but we don't know what Trump's going to do next. Mm, that's true. Like, is he going to try and dispute the um, the outcome of the election? Not if he wins. No, but if he, that's what I'm saying. If he loses, what's going to happen next? Just because he loses the election doesn't mean that he's going to necessarily fade into the background. All sorts of things could happen uh, with true. him going forward. So, um we're living in very exciting times. Who knows? <laughs> That's a, isn't that a curse in uh, Mandarin? May you live in interesting times. <laughs> yes, that's right. And I think that that curse is upon us. <laughs> yeah. yeah, very um, true. I'm, I'm curious as to whether um, Trump continues, whether he loses uh, in, um, uh, in the next election or whether he stays on for another three terms or whatever he's, he said he's going to do. But when he's finally out of office, whether he's going to continue the tradition of writing the presidential memoir, because that would be a really... <laughs> I'm sure he will. I mean, he's written books before. Has he? Written. Nobody, yeah. nobody out in the um, in the world can see my air quotes, but you know they were they were very firmly around the word written. I I, I would doubt. I mean, he'll have it ghostwritten, but I, I doubt he'd be the first um, president to have his memoir ghostwritten. So even that's not that. I think he'll start a, a TV channel um, that is wor worse than Fox News. I was, I was, I was about to say, doesn't he already have a TV channel? Isn't and he if he has a and if he has a I wouldn't surprise me then if he has a spin-off publishing imprint. I'll find someone to do that. So that's what we can look forward to, an entire media empire run by uh, Donald J. Trump. Oh, Fun! I'm sure you're looking forward to meeting with that uh, that publishing imprint sales rep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that sales rep is looking forward to repping that list. <laughs> All right, um, moving on to the next topic. Uh, Shakespeare and Company, the legendary Paris bookstore, um, has reported that they've seen their sales fall 80% this year. Um, and they are asking for orders and for support to help them through this, this tough time. It comes um, off the back of lots of bookstores uh, around the world kind of facing uh, uh, tough times during COVID. Um, what do we think about the, the impact of, of this on, on these famous independent bookstores? I mean, Shakespeare and Company is a 
not just a bookstore it's a it's its own like little cultural thing so many famous authors have have come through there and and written within its walls um and should it close down it would be the end of a of a publishing phenomenon i think mm. i think these days i mean correct me if i'm wrong and you guys might know better than me but um these days i think shakespeare and co is more like a a literary tourist attraction like a literary disneyland because you know you come here and see the um bit of floor that uh Hemingway slept on and all that kind of thing it's it's uh it certainly served its purpose as a um as you know a a haven for struggling artists um but it would be really sad to see a an icon like that disappear they they say that they've um you know they run through all of their savings and that they um you know they're behind on their rent and all that kind of thing it would it would be sad to see them go but apparently they're big, they're already getting quite a lot of support because they have probably quite a lot of rich fans. And some of the people that, um, you know, they call them their, uh, their tumbleweeds, the people that um, uh, slept there and worked there and wrote there, um, a lot of those people are very, very wealthy authors now or the descendants of very, very wealthy authors. So I think that they've got a pretty uh, rich base of supporters to call on. Lots of independent bookstores don't have that uh, that rich history and that rich base of support. Mm. And um, I see that 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 in France as well, the um, uh, Book Selling Association has asked to be listed as an essential service, uh, which would entitle them. That's, that's, that's very French, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, but look, I mean, we've we've seen in the Australian book industry that. Um, uh, far from you know everybody being scared to spend money on books, books uh, sales of books have um, have skyrocketed across the whole industry uh, because you know when you are stuck at home, you need to have something. You need to have something for your mental health. Um, and there's only so many series you can watch on Netflix before um, you need to turn to another um, another pastime. So I can I can see how having books available is really, really important for people in these times, especially as they're facing another lockdown. Mm, it'd be, I think it'd be really interesting to see how Australia fares through this in terms of our independent bookshop scene. I think there's a good chance that we will see some closures of small indies, which will be a real tragedy for the whole industry. Because, you know, I think unlike the US and the UK, we've already seen a huge contraction of independent bookshops in the you know, in the wake of, um, you know, supermarkets in the UK and, you know, big big box stores in the U US and Walmart and Amazon. Um, we have held on to a pretty healthy chunk of our industry being independent bookshops compared to, compared to those countries. Uh, and if this is what um, knocks some of them over, I think that will be really sad because I do think Australia has a quite a interesting and diverse mm. um, literary and culture. I and I think especially because... Um, you know, we're seeing even in the states where uh, lockdown is very much relaxed, that people are holding on to this new habit of of reading more. You know, people are really um, taking the good things that have come out of um, out of lockdown. You know, the the chance to spend time with family and friends, cooking and entertaining more, reading, gardening, all of that stuff, all of the good stuff and the slowing down stuff, and um, you know, remembering how important those things are, 
Um, so hopefully for those that can survive the short-term financial pain, which I know must be really difficult, um, there's plenty of opportunity coming up. Yeah. Um, before we move on to the next uh, next part of the uh, uh, show, if we've finished uh, uh, our, our chat, um, we are sponsored this week by Vanishing Falls, a novel by Poppy G. Uh, Celia Lilly is rich, beautiful, and admired. She's also missing. And the search for the glamorous socialite is about to expose all the dark, dirty secrets of Vanishing Falls. Deep within the lush Tasmanian rainforest is the remote town of Vanishing Falls, a place with a storied past. The town's showpiece, built in the 1800s, is its calendar house, currently occupied by Jack Lilly, a prominent art collector and landowner, his wife Celia, and their four daughters. The elaborate, eccentrically designed mansion houses one masterpiece and 52 rooms, and Celia Lilly isn't in any of them. She has vanished without a trace. Uh, Vanishing Falls by uh, Australian novelist Poppy G is available from the 17th of November at booktopia.com.au. All right, let's get into what we've been reading this uh, week. Uh, let's start with Shinu. What are you reading at the moment? Uh, what I'm reading, nothing, but what I've read uh, because I only read on the weekends. I don't have time to read during the week. I don't know you crazy people who have time for weekend for weekday reading. Um, is uh, David Chang's uh, memoir, Eat a Peach, um, which uh, he co-wrote with um, Gabe Uller. And um, for people that don't know, David Chang is a mainly, I guess he would call himself a restaurateur, um, but also host of um, TV shows and podcasts. And... Um, quite well known in Australia more so than some other US chefs because he did spend a year in Sydney while he was opening his restaurant, uh, Mamafuku Cebu, um, in the Star Casino. And um, this memoir was so much more, like I don't I don't actually know what I was expecting when I started it. I just um, needed something to read and uh, it was just like, oh, yep, that's just come out and I've eaten at the Mamafuku restaurants um, in, in New York and um, in Sydney. And um, I've always, you know, found him really interesting and loved the food. And so I thought, you know, let's give it a go. And it was amazing. It was one of the best pieces, I think one of the best um, things I've read and enjoyed and found sort of challenging and um, interesting, um, like, oh, yeah. And I've read a lot of stuff this year. So um, I'm not really normally a memoir person, but this this year I've read, well, this month I've read two, two memoirs. I've read this one and also um, David McAllister's um, saw, which I also loved for different reasons. Um, but this memoir is not just about, um, it's, it's just about like so much, so, so many different things. So David's very, or David's is really, you know, kind of known to a lot of people, is really um, open and really forthcoming about the struggles he's had in his life with, uh, with mental illness, which just doesn't get talked about enough. And it's also really, um, really dives deep into the culture of of, of of restaurants and what it means to be a chef. And um, it's got a great list at the back of things that you should do if you want to be a chef. Um, <laughs> and actually after doing that, I was just like, I can't imagine anyone want to be a chef um, because it seems like a really, really hard life. But I know lots of people that are chefs and love it. So there's obviously, you know, something something great about it. And he does sort of try and articulate what's, what's so great. And what I thought was amazing is that he talks about how he wasn't actually, when he started, like a very good, he wasn't very good at being like a chef he was terrible like and he was just very lucky that people recognized that he just had this tenacity where he just went 
if I just keep going at it, I will get better. And he did, and it worked. Um, he does acknowledge, though, that a lot of that keep going and keep going was sort of um, that kind of mentality was actually because of his mental illness. So it was kind of like a way for him to um, sort of deal, like kind of it was part of it. It was all like bound up together. So you can't really separate his success from his personal, um, you know, struggles. And um, the other bit that I found really fascinating was when he did reflect back on the kind of time in the media where, you know, there was one article where it was him and two other male chefs and basically they were called gods of food. Like when did people that made food become so elevated in the world that they're like the <laughs> gods of food? And, of course, the only ones in there were men. And he does talk about that whole, um, you know, way of, of, of kitchens and of, of like commercial kitchens and like high-end kitchens and, and the kind of very masculine um, sort of way that they behave and like how he was part of that and how, you know, for ages he was just like, yeah. And, you know, you, and you see all these like bro stories of like, you know, going and doing all this like, you know, macho cooking stuff and like, you know, back to nature and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it was really interesting to read about how, you know, he's recognising that, you know, that's, that was not great and that was not great for a lot of the people in the, uh, you know, in the in the chef industry and all the people that kind of got left behind. He also had really interesting things to say about cultural appropriation in food um, because, you know, he, he was Korean but Momofuku was a noodle bar based on, like ramen noodles, which was something that not wasn't really being done in New York um, at the time that he opened the restaurant in uh, two thousand and early two thousands. Um, so yeah, it was just and the writing was really great, and he's really good at um, expressing that you know the writing wouldn't have been like the book wouldn't have come together if it wasn't for um, if it wasn't for his you know his co writer and also Chris Ying who he worked with on Lucky Peach magazine and. Um, uh, yeah, I just learned so much, so much that I didn't know and uh, it was just structured really well and it was really funny and um, I definitely recommend it to anyone that has any interest in the restaurant industry or food but also anyone that just wants to read a really good story um, about someone's personal struggles in life and how they've overcome it and what their views are on, you know, the world. That's really interesting, Shanu. Um, it kind of, I'm going to just like jump right in because it segues really nicely into um, an audiobook that I've been listening to. Um, I've been listening to um, a book called Grit by Angela Duckworth. Um, and it's uh, a nonfiction book all about um, how talent is bollocks. Um, yep. You know, talent is like a teeny, teeny, tiny part yep. of the equation of um, yep. high achievers and how the majority of um, people who achieve really highly in life have this um, this tenacity and this stick to itness um, to actually say, I'm not uh, I'm not good at that yet. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep drilling. I'm going to keep practising, um, which is, uh, really, it's it's the book I really needed to uh, read at the moment. You know, like you go through periods where you're like, I'm just not good at this or that or the other. And it's really refreshing to um, step back and look at how lots of very high achievers have started out being pretty good at something and have just worked at it and worked at it and worked at it uh, to become leaders in their field. Yeah. Um, it's a really, really interesting book. 
I mean, there's certainly there's certainly some things that you know, like as much as I work and work and work, I would never be a ballerina. But, um, <laughs> oh, there are things but, that are like anatomically you can't, you know, you can't do. But, um, but there's so that's, much. That's a small. That's a small part. There's so much other stuff that you can do, and that too easily we just go. Well, we're not good at it immediately, so we must give up on it. Exactly. And, uh, if you want to actually, it reminds me yeah. of Outliers, the Malcolm Gladwell book. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. About the ten thousand hours, yep. basically. Yeah. To, to yeah. He talks something. about that. Yeah. 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 Which I think uh, is the I, other thing that got lost in that, right? Is that people were like that? That's a good message, but then people were just focusing on like I think that was an example of like you know, like on a, on a physical prowess thing as opposed to thinking of it as like a like a strategy thing for anything that you're doing in life. Hmm. Yeah. And she talks about as well, like yes, ten thousand hours is good. But um, 10,000 hours of just doing a thing mindlessly is not necessarily going to get you to where you want to go. You need to be, um, you need to be practising deliberately um, the skill that you're trying to improve. You need to be um, focusing, on, uh, focusing on the areas where you need improvement rather than just doing the thing that you're already good at. Um, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of technique that needs to be taken into your practice. Just drilling something... For ten thousand hours is not necessarily enough. Yeah, um, yeah. And she also she talks about you know fixed mindset versus growth mindset, um, and she talks about um, this really interesting uh, experimentation that was done, uh, I think in the in the seventies. It sounds horribly horribly cruel, uh, where they gave electric shocks to dogs and some of the dogs were able to stop the electric shock and some of the elect the dogs were not able to stop the electric shock by like pushing a button and uh the dogs that were able to stop the electric shock were much more resilient to future pain than the dogs that didn't have any control over the electric shock which shows that you know the sense of being in control of your own destiny makes you more resilient than having absolutely no hope and having no control. Oh, that's um, really interesting. Yeah, really fascinating read. I've heard, I've, I've heard about that book and wanted to read it before, but I heard, I've heard about it in relation to the sort of education movement around it, in particular yeah. the US. I don't know if that's also come out here because I don't have kids. Yeah, in, it has. It has. Yeah. I mean, my husband's a, um, a school teacher and has um, uh, only started being a school teacher in the last few years. So he's done his uh, Bachelor of Education reasonably recently. And that whole um, piece around fixed mindset versus growth mindset is very, very big in education, um, you know, learning education these days, you know. So rather than saying, oh, maybe maths is not your best subject, let's focus on English, making sure that your language towards children is, it sounds like you haven't mastered that particular technique yet. What can we do to work on it? What can we do to, um, to help you get better? And always looking at um, what you can and can't do now in terms of how you can improve it and saying, well rather done, you worked really hard for that, rather than, well done, you're so talented. Yeah, I reckon that's, it, I think it's so important. It's in direct opposition to the sort of overwhelming parenting movement at the moment, which just seems to be about, like praising your children to within an inch of their lives and they're just and and sort of allowing them to control your life as a parent yeah. it's never been something that i was very interested in partially because i just you know i'm lazy and i don't want my kids <laughs> to run my life um but i i i do think you know and i i think kids don't seem very resilient these days in but uh compared to 
not compared to little kids when when we were growing up, but certainly there's like a there's a there's a type of kid around the age of about you know between between five and fifteen that uh, I think they just had we had more freedom or something, um, and it is I think having that freedom gives you more like you were saying control over your life, and maybe that does make you a bit more resilient and. Uh, and, and to try harder to do things that you wouldn't necessarily have done. Whereas I think kids these days, and I can totally see myself doing it with my kids, it's sort of more um, boxed into what they have to do. Mm. Um, the next thing is the next thing they do and, and mm. there's not... Well, we had you know, so much less supervision, mm. you know. So if you're having a fight with your mates or, you know, something happened that was challenging, you just had to sort it out because there were no adults around a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah, these it makes days, a big difference. You know, you don't let your kids roam quite as far as young. Mm. Yeah, kids, kids these days. Kids these days. Yeah. <laughs> Get off my lawn. <laughs> the grumpy old person Booktopia podcast. I know, right? <laughs> um, John, what have you been reading? Uh, I've been reading a couple of books. Two uh, that both have truth in the title. That's my that's my linking. Um, <laughs> uh, also, that they are. Uh, I'm doing interviews with both of them for the podcast. Uh, one I've already done, which was with Fiona O'Loughlin, um, and her book is called Truths from an Unreliable Witness. Um, it's a memoir about, uh, and Fiona O'Loughlin, if you don't know, is a comedian. She was on, you know, just very successful in the uh, mid-2000s, I guess, early mid-2000s. Um, you know, was at Edinburgh, was at Montreal, was at Melbourne Comedy Festivals. Um, was on TV, was on Rove Live. Remember Rove? Uh, oh, yeah, that guy? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, I remember her being everywhere in that in the period of time when I was watching television at that time. And then I, you know, just stopped paying attention and she disappeared and I didn't notice. But what was actually happening is that she was having like an addiction meltdown and she, you know, she addicted to alcohol and... Um, collapsed on stage you know the public facing part of that is that she collapsed collapsed on stage blackout drunk and then came out and said she's an alcoholic but what with, what you get in this book is the sort of behind the scenes um exploration of how addiction has intertwined with her life and i think it's just uh really dark in some ways because i think what she's trying to do here is is have a sort of honest accounting of what she really did because a lot of it is um, bookended by all the lies she told to try and get out of being caught because so much of it was tied up in the way she did comedy and how, you know, one of the, thing, the things she says is that she, she used to just do drink two of those small bottles of Smirnoff before she went on stage every single time she went on stage. And she wasn't able to do it without, without that. And um, the process of getting to a point where she could do comedy without alcohol was long and it, involved so many um you know falling off the wagon so many times and you know she's and then you know to a to an extent that I, has never been made public you know she was she was in a coma and nearly died she's been in um, psych wards she's been in rehab multiple times she's nearly died a couple of times it's just much darker than i think people realize uh, and yet the book is really funny <laughs> so which sounds uh remarkable that that's the case but she is just able to take quite dark material and turn it to humor even in, in the darkest times and her family seemed to have inherited her sort of 
wit. So she can sort of report on the way that her family responds to her in this way that's very funny sometimes too. So I, I really enjoyed it. I think it's going to um, cut through. Um, she's she's sort of on on a good publicity jaunt at the moment, so I think it's going to probably be everywhere for a while. Um, and it's de definitely worth a read. I think she's really interesting. And I hope she I hope she pulls it together. She seems to have pulled it together for now. And But reading the book, I think, and she would probably agree that, you know, it's always a process of holding on because it's so easy to, to relapse. Um, so I hope she does. It's very, it's very um, sad and interesting. Um, the other book I'm reading that I've just started is um, Malcolm Knox's new non-fiction book. He's got a fiction book out at the moment that's um, everyone's talking about, it seems to me. Um, including Hugh his, <laughs> Including Hugh Jackman. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I'm reading his non-fiction book, <laughs> which is called Truth is Trouble. Um, it's about the, the, the sort of inciting incident of the book is the Israel Folau um, media, if you were around, uh, I don't know if you remember that story, but um, Israel Folau is a rugby league player, I think. <laughs> uh, and don't quote me on that because <laughs> sports. <laughs> when you say rugby, that's the best way. Just say rugby and then you don't have to worry about whether it's legal or rugby, People think rugby union. Doesn't matter. That's their. That's on them. Whatever they think. You've just said them. the word rugby. That's rugby. All you can do. It's rugby. I would say football. He's a football player. Um, that's actually even more not, inclusive. Definitely not soccer, though. Not soccer. Uh, uh, he is from a uh, religious uh, sect, I guess, uh, um, that is quite hostile to homosexuality, and came out very, very aggressively against uh, marriage equality at the time, and. Uh, was censured by uh, the football club eventually after some pressure and I think it was eventually sacked um, uh, and there was a huge media furor about it but the, the way that um, Malcolm Knox talks about it is really interesting because it sort of puts it at the at this crux of the culture wars in Australia around free speech but also the way that that particular event uh, changed the dividing lines between everyone because there were people who were um, you know, religious conservatives who are obviously in favour of him, but then there were people who were in favour of, um, you know, your workplace not censoring, censoring what you like shouldn't have the power to censor what you say outside of the work, outside of workplaces, that were, you know, reluctantly in favour of his right to keep his job, um, and then there's just like there's just so many um, aspects to it that I think are really interesting. So the book is, you know, I've only read the first couple of chapters, but um, the book is going to explore that in each chapter in more detail and how and how it is now interacting with um the pandemic basically and how that's also changing the way that australian culture wars are working because you know you've got these people who are like anti-mask or and see it as a invasion of their civil liberties um and freedom of speech whilst also complaining about black lives matter and protesters who go out that so it's it's just a really interesting time right about politics I believe you're you're chatting with him on the podcast next week. Yes, on, okay. I think Tuesday, which is the day of the US election, so it should be <laughs> an interesting chat. I think. Yeah, that that that, that will be fun. We'll see what the timing's like there. <laughs> um, did anybody have any other books they wanted to to mention before we move on to our next segment? Uh, I did want to just talk very briefly about how I really did love also because I did, I just mentioned in passing that David McAllister's saw. Um, if you have ever um, it's like such a great behind the scenes of both the Australian ballet 
because he has worked with every single um, director of the Australian Ballet because the Australian Ballet, as it is, has only been around since 1962, I think it's 1964, and he he's basically spent his entire life since he was um, 18 in with the Australian Ballet and it's just amazing. And he danced and met every single famous ballerina or um, ballet dancer like that was around in, in the last 40 years. It's just incredible. Plus also his own personal story. It's so lovely. It's such a lovely story. And it also does, again, show you he had amazing talent, right? He was like born to dance. Like literally if you want to talk about someone that's born to do something, he was born to dance. He just loved it from, from whenever he could remember. That's just what he wanted to do. Um, but, again, it shows that, yes, talent, but you have to also be so dedicated and you have to be doing that ballet class every single day to um, to really be where he is. And, you know, there's a great story he gets told of, of um, Maynard Gil- Gilgood, the artistic director of the Australian Ballet, uh, telling him that because he's, you know, has a, a, quite a prominent nose, but basically telling him, yes, um, I think we might have to do something about that. And basically telling him that he'll probably have to get a nose job to to stay in the Australian ballet. But then comes back to him like weeks later after he's like freaking out about, oh, my God, I'm never going to have a career, blah, 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 and saying after seeing him dance, you'll be okay. Like as in he can keep 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 your nose. nose. And and he was, we got to do, and if you haven't listened to the podcast, um, you can listen to Olivia and I like basically fangirling all over (laughs) the podcast about about, uh, his story. But, um, and we barely got to touch the surface about what's in the book, even though the book's not, super long it just covers like so many interesting um areas of um of like i said his life but also uh, you know what australian what the australian ballet was like and is like and how it's changing and how it's um you know what his what he would like his legacy to be from that which um which you can actually see like if you're a person you can actually see what you know watch some some australian ballet on um, online now um obviously they can't perform in real life yet and then you know watch you know what it was like 20 years ago and you can really see the um the push to diversity and body more body inclusivity which you would never think it would happen in ballet but you know um you know has and um i think australian ballet has really led the way on on, on that and so um i definitely recommend that one as well and that's it two non-fiction whoever thought that i would be coming on all non-fiction guys thank non-fiction. you non-fiction <laughs> <laughs> well, i i also i did actually finish a fiction book last night um, I have, I feel like I've read most of the really big, exciting uh, fiction new releases that I wanted to read this year. And I went back and dipped into um, Past the Shallows by Favel Parrot. Um, I read uh, the one about Czechoslovakia um, when it the came out. One. What's that one called? The new the one. one. Anyway, yeah. uh, and I went back and read Past the Shallows just this last week. It is just gorgeous. It's so evocative of um, of time and place. Um, it's so uniquely Australian and so uniquely Tasmanian. Um, the way she depicts um, these children and their relationship to each other and their relationship to their family is just... Uh, really touching. It's like uh, similar to a, a Sophie Laguna in the way she really uh, captures that um, spirit of childhood working through adversity. Um, just a just a gorgeous, gorgeous book. You can almost taste the sea salt in your mouth as you're reading it. You know, it's all about uh, fishing in Tasmania. It's just, it's just gorgeous. I, um, I know that everybody's read that book 
Um, but I would, if you haven't, I would urge you to go back and, and dip back in. Yeah, I, I read that when it first came out many years ago. And um, it, it's funny that you, you say you can like taste the sea salt. But my experience with it was like, I could feel like the cold and the damp. Like, yes. Yeah, so evocative. Yeah, that's right. You're almost shivering under the covers reading it in bed. Yeah. Um, so I finished that and I went from sort of the sublime to the ridiculous. I've now picked up um, A Single Man by Christopher Isherwood. <laughs> um, and I'm a couple of chapters into that. And that is um, very evocative and lovely in a completely different way. Excellent. All right. Well, well thank you so much um, for sharing your picks, guys. Uh, before we move on to our favourite part of the show. Um, oh. Yeah. <laughs> When, when you say your favourite part of the show, I think you're yeah. <laughs> uh, here else? to embarrass all of us and humiliate all of us, which is, I guess, a change from what we usually do to you. So fair enough. So we're sponsored by another book, uh, which is The Reckless Oath We Make by Brian Greenwood. Z is nobody's fairy tale princess, Almost six foot with a redhead's temper and a shattered hip, she has a long list of worries, never-ending bills, her beautiful gullible sister, her five-year-old nephew, her housebound mother, and her drug-dealing boss. Z may not be a princess, but Gentry is an actual knight, complete with sword, armour, and coat of honour. Two years ago, the voices he hears called him to be Z's champion. Both shy and autistic, he's barely spoken to her since, but he has kept watch, ready to come to her aid. When an abduction tears Z's family apart, she turns to the last person she ever imagined, and Gentry sets in motion a chain of events that will not only change both of their lives, but bind them to one another forever. Uh, the Reckless Oath We Made by Bryn Greenwood is available from the 17th of November through booktopia.com.au. All right. Are we ready? So, uh, as usual, uh, what sounds will we be making to buzz in? Uh, Joe, what are you going to buzz in with? <sighs> That's <a good> one. <laughs> You want to go with uh? Yeah, really? No, I want to go with uh. <laughs> uh Chinu. Come back to me. That's not what I'm saying. I just don't know. All right, Joel. I'm trying to think of something appropriate. Uh, there we go. Okay. <laughs> Right, I'm gonna say a word. It's gonna be pumpkin. I'm gonna go with you. I'm, I'm I'm rolling with the Halloween theme. Okay. All right. It's time for book fight. Question one: uh, Who name the author of the 2012 literary zombie novel Zone One? <laughs> this is a super famous author, guys. Uh -huh. <laughs> pumpkin. Pumpkin. I'm just going to say Stephen King because it's the only person I can think of that's a famous author. No. Of, uh, what, what did you say? What was the book called? I wasn't even listening. Zone One by. Oh, I know this one. This is by the guy who did the Underground Railroad, right? Yes. Cos oh, uh, I know. I know. Cross my, my head. Yeah. Oh, this is a did you say literary? Oh, I, I thought literary. Said, sorry, I thought we were talking. This is a Halloween one, so I wasn't actually really listening, that. and I just assumed that it was That's like. That's why see, I'm trying to democratize it and make it less like genre and niche and more like open to you guys. So why has that got anything to do with Halloween? That because it's, it's, it's got zombies. It's a zombie. It's like monsters. Zombies. Uh, I think we all know that Halloween's about dressing up as sexy nurses. <laughs> I don't know what the zombies are <laughs> from. We feature lots of books about sexy nurses on booktopia.com.au, I can tell you. Sexy nurse werewolves. I have questions about um, sexy nurse werewolves. So 
apologies. <laughs> okay, next question. You can you can pick up a number of points here. Uh, name all of the Hannibal Lecter novels by Thomas Harris. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, Silence of the Lambs? Yep. That's the only one I know. Uh, there's that new one, though. Uh, the newer one. Was that about him as well? No? I, mean, <laughs> I can't remember what it was called anyway. Uh, anybody else? There's, uh, there's Red Dragon. <gasps> yep. Yeah, that's the one you think. Uh, of. Hannibal Rising, that's newish. Yeah, no, that's relatively. Um, and the Silence of the Lambs. What's the other one? There's one. Is the one actually called Hannibal? Hannibal. Yes. Oh yeah, I think, <laughs> I think Shanu should get that point. Yep. Absolutely. I don't mind. I'm never going to win. That's the only ones one. I know. All right. Yeah. So yeah, the Red Dragon, Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal, and Hannibal Rising, which was the the more recent one, which was a prequel. Uh, all right. Oh, that one makes sense. Next question. <laughs> The 1971 Charlton Heston movie, The Omega Man, is based on which classic apoc apocalyptic horror novel that was first published in 1954? <sighs> <laughs> that wasn't my noise. No. <laughs> yeah, no one should ever make sighing the noise because then you would have... <laughs> um, I'll, uh, I'll give you another clue. It was, it was filmed again under its original title uh, in this century, um, and it starred Will Smith. Oh, pff. I know this. Joel. I am legend. I am legend by Richard Matheson. Very good. I read that book. That's a good book. Yeah. Did you watch the movie? Was the movie any good? I the don't movie like was Will not Smith. good. Yeah. I mean, I like Will Smith. I have never seen the Omega Smith, Man, though. Uh, all right, next question. Jonathan Parker is a central character in which 1897 horror novel, which is probably the most influential novel of its particular horror sub subgenre. Yo. Dracula? Dracula, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what I thought. That's good. At least I thought the right thing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, name the 2007 novel that is a fictional <laughs> account of an ill-fated 1845 Arctic expedition with additional horror elements that was the basis for a recent TV series on a popular streaming service. Bonus points if you can name the author. That question's too long. So say that. Say the say the beginning part. Seven novel. It's a fictionalized account of an 1845 Arctic expedition, uh, where the author has added fictionalized horror elements, and a popular streaming service that I will not name uh, made it into a TV series recently. Oh, I can't think of any TV series about an Arctic expedition. I, 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 I do know what you're talking about, but this is so of not interest to me that I immediately, when it came up on said streaming service, <laughs> went straight past it. And, uh, Can you give us another clue, Mark? It. Uh, it stars Jared Harris, who was the guy in Chernobyl and um, something else recently. Yeah, I even read about it. Still don't remember it because no. not interested. Don't, don't have it in my brain. Okay, it was The Terror by Dan Simmons. I know that I've heard of that, but and and no. it's a good show. Okay, next one. Are we going to get this one? Who am I? I was born. Mark. In... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't make the noise go. Uh, get point. Yeah. Also, I'm not going to give you a point because, like, I, I I don't even know who I am these days. Uh, <laughs> I? I was born in Rhode Island in 1890. I was a prolific writer of letters, and I also wrote and published stories that were mainly published in pulp magazines. 
before dying in poverty at the age of 46. However, I am now regarded as one of the most significant horror writers of all time. My work views humanity as an insignificant part of a cruel and uncaring universe and is often referred to as cosmic <laughs> horror. Joel. H.P. Lovecraft. H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> so I was right. There was a question about it about him in the in the in the, in the, in the book fight. <laughs> I was waiting to see. Uh... I couldn't be bothered, honestly. I'm not going to win. <laughs> so what's the point? <laughs> well, we have one question left, and the score so far: Joe is on one, Shinu is on one, and Joel is on six. So see what I mean? Why? Why bother? <laughs> All right. I like I like this book fight. Yeah. Okay with it, guys. <laughs> I, I, honestly, I'm fine. I'm very happy for anyone to. I don't care about winning, so I'm very happy that if Joel does, that you win. Doesn't that make the winning like less important if no one else it cares does. about You're it? Really ruining my win. I know. I want you to be well done, Shani. Five points. The last question. This is the opening line of a novel. It is a it is a horror novel, but it's a very iconic kind of moment. So let's see if you guys can can guess it. Okay. So which novel opens with the line? The terror, which would not end for another 28 years, began, so far as I know or can tell, with a boat made from a sheet of newspaper floating down a gutter swollen with rain. Oh, I know it, but should I? <laughs> is it it? It is it. <laughs> My Stephen King. <laughs> Little boy chasing boat, a paper boat, boat. From a gutter, and then... I don't actually know the first line of it. Just... Now you do. Now I do. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so Joel... that was still that was a very mark focused book fight. <laughs> After all your predations to the <laughs> I tried to make it. I'm okay with it because I got it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. well, there you go. Joel got seven, winning. Uh, Joe and Shanu won each. No, but I gave Shanu five points. <laughs> Ribbing of Joel. Okay, she still she still <laughs> still still lost. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> which it was is fine. Close, <laughs> well, thank you, thank you guys for being such good sports. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, Weekend Booktopian is produced by Nick Wasiliev. You can find links to the books we discussed today in the episode description, or you can find them on booktopia.com.au. You can listen to all of our shows for free on SoundCloud and iTunes, including our recent interview with Joanne Harris and our Booktopia on Halloween book discussion. Uh, until next time, thank you for listening and never stop reading. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au